Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And as you can see on your screen, and as you probably already know, having clicked on this video in the first place, Parler has lost its request for an injunction against Amazon. Now, you might be more familiar with the term injunction, suggesting that you're trying to stop somebody from doing something. And indeed, that is in fact what's happening here. But because of the way this happened, where Amazon kicked Parler off of their service, Parler was trying to stop Amazon from kicking them off, thus forcing Amazon to support Parler on their hosting services. So with that as our headline item, I did want to give a hat tip on Twitter to Spirit Kid, who informed me that this happened immediately as it occurred with a tweet called Hoglaw, 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 Hoglaw. Thank you very much, Spirit Kid. At Spirit Kid is gone. I appreciate being flagged on these types of topics because I can't be everywhere. And it's always nice to know that the folks that like virtual legality that are here regularly uh, are out there telling me when big things happen uh, in the world of big technology, video games, or elsewise. Now, if you don't have any idea at all what I'm talking about, might I recommend checking out the playlist Big Tech at Large. I haven't done a separate playlist for this whole parlor situation, but you can see the top three videos that we did. The latest videos that we did in this playlist are all about this lawsuit, Amazon's response to that lawsuit, Parler's response to Amazon's response to that lawsuit, and now ultimately the court holding that Parler won't win its injunction, that they can't force Amazon to host their stuff. And why is that? Well, let's take a look. I will warn you, spoiler alert, if you have watched those prior three videos and have listened to me talking about this case, then you probably already know what the court wound up saying. And much apologies to my fellow legal analysts here on YouTube and elsewhere that perhaps thought this would go a little bit differently. Unfortunately, I was right. Now, I say that's unfortunate because I don't necessarily love that Amazon and iTunes and Google Play and everywhere else can move against a company this quickly, that they actually have this right in their contract and that I have to analyze this and say, yeah, they have this power, they reserve this power to themselves. I think that is a worthwhile avenue of conversation for folks to have regarding big technology. Heck, I did a video yesterday about YouTube using its contractual rights, I don't argue that, to actually censor one of my videos about censorship. And so I understand people that come into this space and say, Rick, I don't care about the legalities here. I don't care about the contracts. I just want Amazon to be punished or Twitter to be punished or all these various things. I understand that impulse. I understand the opposite impulse that says these companies have the right to do these things and they need to be able to get rid of all this filth from their services. I think that there are a lot of good arguments really on both sides of these kinds of issues as there have been throughout the history of free speech conversations. And I think those conversations are important to have. So I very much hope that a lot of these services allow those conversations to kind of percolate and that we don't get into a situation where it's just echo chambers on either side. Now, let's dive into this particular document. As the court says, Parler is seeking to have the court order Defendant Amazon Web Services, AWS, to reinstate AWS's web hosting services that AWS provided Parler under the party's customer services agreement. So again, this is a effectively an active injunction. They want to make the other party do something, not just refrain from doing something. That's always going to be a little bit harder to convince the court to do. After some rigmarole here with the logistics, the motion has been converted to one for a preliminary injunction instead of the temporary restraining order that Parler had originally asked for. Now, there are three flavors of the complaint that Parler has filed. Conspiracy and restraint of trade, breach of contract, 
and tortious interference. That first one, conspiracy and restraint of trade, we traditionally refer to as antitrust violations. This is labeled as a violation of the Sherman Act, Section 1. And those are the three areas in which Parler wanted to force Amazon to host their content. Now, it's important to note, and I think the court is right to do so here, just as we did at the top of this video series on Parler, it's important to note what this case is not about. Parler is not asserting a violation of any First Amendment rights. They aren't doing what so many Twitter and social media lawyers, and I mean that to mean they don't have law degrees, go out there and say, oh, it's a violation of the First Amendment, et cetera, et cetera. Parler was smart and didn't actually argue that because that's not a legal argument. As the court says, those claims exist only against a governmental entity and not against a private company like AWS. And indeed, Parler has not disputed that at least some of the abusive and violent posts that gave rise to the issues in this case violate AWS's acceptable use policy. Now, as we talked about when we looked at that policy in an earlier video in this series, it's pretty broad. The Amazon can actually accuse you of breaching the acceptable use policy for things that Amazon self-determines are harmful to Amazon. Now, Amazon didn't actually have to rely upon that because they had all these examples they could show to the court, which the court was clearly unhappy with, as we will see in the language in this document. But Amazon reserves a very broad acceptable use policy that chances are you or I could breach on a moment's notice. And if you do breach that AUP, then you're in breach of the customer service agreement. They can suspend you. And if they can suspend you, they can terminate you. I don't love that contractual framework. You come to me in my office and ask me to review that document. I'm going to point out the flaws and the legal exposure and the liability that you have if you sign up to that document. But sign it, Parler did. And so we're left with this case. As a motion for a preliminary injunction, before any discovery has been conducted, Parler seeks only to have the court determine the likelihood that Parler will ultimately prevail on its claims. The court finds and rules as follows. Now, I highlighted that just to note, if you haven't listened to a lawsuit discussion before a, a court opinion like this one, uh, it's very often the case that they actually give the overall finding early on and then explain how they got there afterwards, especially in a case like this, where you generally want the journalist to be able to read it pretty quickly and say, okay, the court found against Parler and then proceed from there. It's a little bit unusual for them to hide the ball a little bit and say, well, we find and rule as follows. So I just wanted to point that out because it's interesting. This court wanted you to read all of their thoughts before getting to the ultimate dispute resolution in this case. AWS has submitted to the court multiple representative examples reflecting content posted on Parler during this period that AWS claims violated the terms of the AUP and the party's agreement. Footnote one, the court will not dignify or amplify these posts by quoting them here. Now, I wanted to point this out because I think that that's fine from the court's perspective, but as we will see in denying Parler's request for an injunction, they will get to the end of this and it will get if not political, a little editorial from the court in, in a way that I don't love to see from a judge, but judges are human beings as much as anyone. And you'll see a certain amount of hostility towards Parler in this document, even though I think the findings are correct. They go a little bit more strongly, a little bit more editorial than I would see. And one of the problems with that is that the court's ultimately going to find that these comments are very, very bad, which is fine. We looked at the actual filings by Amazon, and I think a lot of them are very, very bad. But in choosing not to put them in this portion of the public record, the actual judicial decision, and leaving them only to the docket, the other documents that you can go and read, maybe, if you're in virtual legality, or otherwise you're just on court listener, or otherwise enthused about law, 
then they've actually made a decision here that doesn't talk about what the breach was. And so I don't think it's as strong of a document as it otherwise could have been. And I think that's a failing of the court, even though I think they ultimately came to the right conclusion on the cases presented before it. Parler claims that in response to speculation that the president would move to Parler, there was a mass exodus of users from Twitter to Parler and a 355% increase in installations of Parler's app. Parler also claims that the surge during this time was responsible for its failure to deal with a backlog of some 26,000 posts that it acknowledges potentially encouraged violence in violation of the AUP. And you heard this referenced by the court. You've heard it in earlier videos in this series, but it's important to note what Parler wasn't arguing about. They weren't really suggesting that everything was fine and dandy on their service, even though they framed themselves as the free speech microblogging alternative. They still have said that they want to have some moderation capability. It wasn't doing its job when they had this big increase. And that was its primary argument, was that we were effectively in technical fault for a short period of time. We could have cured it. And Amazon offered us a 30-day cure period in the document that we should have received. And by not giving it to us, we were harmed outside of the contract and in a way that Amazon intended to benefit Twitter. That's the restraint of trade, the Sherman Act, the antitrust violation portion of things. The problem they always had and continue to have, as we will see in this document, is that the agreement they actually signed gave Amazon all this breadth of power to actually say, nope, it's violative. Yes, you're suspended. If I can suspend you, I can terminate you and you are out of luck. And so Parler was always claiming that they had signed a contract that they didn't and they never grappled with an argument to suggest that the provisions that were in black and white on their customer agreement should not be applied to the instant case. Continuing, Parler failed to provide the certification required under the federal rules, verifying that its console made an effort to serve AWS notice of the motion or in the alternative why notice should not be required. The court therefore ordered Parler to provide notice of its motion to AWS. Further, the court set a briefing schedule. As directed, AWS filed its opposition on January 12th, which we covered. Parler filed a reply on January 13th, which we covered. On January 14th, the court held a hearing on the motion by video conference, which we didn't cover, but I heard didn't go swimmingly for Parler. But I only highlight this paragraph because this is not what you want to be the first impression of the court. Right. So the, what happened here is Parler files a complaint seeking an ex parte TRO from the court prohibiting AWS from suspending services. And Parler didn't follow the rules of civil procedure that the court would have had followed with that particular request. And so you've already started out, if you're Parler, with the court kind of against you because you tried to trick it. You tried to do something that was untoward. And the court is not inclined to love those kinds of moves. Then when we get to talking about the customer agreement, when you just ignore a provision that is directly on point to what you're arguing about, court's not going to love that either, which we pointed out earlier in this series. Standard for issuance of preliminary injunction. If this isn't your first rodeo in virtual legality, you probably know this by heart now. This is called the winter factors. For an injunction to issue, you have to show some level of all of these elements, a likelihood of a win, irreparable harm that would be caused to you, that fairness is on your side, the balance of equities, and that the public should be on your side. It will be benefited most by your getting this injunction. Now, this is a balancing test. These winter factors can have one be weak and two be strong, and then the balance is overall going to favor you. But the most important one of these is the likelihood of a win. The court doesn't really want to issue temporary restraining orders or preliminary injunctions to a litigant that is unlikely in the extreme to win their case. So as we will see when the court finds that they are way, way, way apart 
from a potential win in this case, that presents an enormous roadblock to having the injunction issue. They also note that the Ninth Circuit out West has some kind of different interpretations of the winter factors here. The Ninth Circuit has maintained that a preliminary injunction may also be appropriate if a movement raises serious questions going to the merits and the balance of hardships tips sharply towards it as long as the second and third winter factors are satisfied, irreparable harm and balance of equities. Which is to say, it's just another repeat of, okay, if likelihood of the wind is really small, but it is significant, it's not 0%, it's 15%. It's got a real possibility if one of two of these facts go the movement's way, then we can allow for really bad harms and really strong balance of the equities to win the day over those. But in essence, that's what the factors always say. A, a small factor can be overcome by two larger factors. And so the Ninth Circuit, they just like to write a little bit of law whenever they get the chance. Further in the Ninth Circuit, the elements of the preliminary injunction test are balanced so that a stronger showing of one element may offset a weaker showing of another. Yep, that's pretty much how it always works. Now, let's talk about those factors one by one. We're going to be spending most of our time on success on the merits because that is the most important. The Sherman Act claim. Parler alleges that AWS's termination of services is apparently designed to reduce competition in the microblogging services market to the benefit of Twitter. Now, this is one of those areas which I have said, yeah, they're probably too weak. They claim circumstantial evidence that Amazon did this, they're involved with Twitter, and so it clearly benefits Twitter, but it's just a set of facts without any acknowledgement that there was a restraint of trade. And in fact, the court comes up with that as well. At this stage in the proceedings, remembering that there hasn't been discovery, this is only a preliminary injunction hearing, Parler has failed to demonstrate that it is likely to succeed on the merits of its Sherman Act claim. While Parler has not yet had an opportunity to conduct discovery, the evidence it has submitted in support of the claim is both dwindlingly slight and disputed by AWS. Importantly, Parler has submitted no evidence that AWS and Twitter acted together intentionally or even at all in restraint of trade. In contrast, AWS has submitted the sworn declaration of an AWS executive explicitly denying the existence of any such agreement. To my knowledge, AWS and Twitter have never discussed, much less agreed upon, any policy practice or act directed at Parler. Indeed, the court continues slamming Parler here. Parler has failed to do more than raise the specter of preferential treatment of Twitter by AWS. The sum of its allegation is that by pulling the plug on Parler but leaving Twitter alone despite identical conduct by users on both sites, AWS reveals that its expressed reasons for suspending Parler's account are but pretext. They are lies. But Parler and Twitter are not similarly situated because AWS does not provide online hosting services to Twitter. Parler's unsupported allegation that AWS provides online hosting services to both Parler and Twitter is explicitly denied in a sworn declaration by an AWS executive who says, we do not yet service the Twitter feed and I am not aware of any particular timeline for doing so. In short, Parler has pro-offered, offered to the court, only faint and factually inaccurate speculation in support of a Sherman Act violation. Now, Coming to an actual determination of factual inaccuracy is unnecessary by the court here. In fact, it probably isn't something the court should be doing. There has been no discovery. These are the pleadings. Uh, on an injunction level, you have to make certain assumptions from the court, but it's probably not wise to say that they are specifically factually inaccurate based only on a declaration of one of the sides in the litigation's executives. And also, from the court's perspective, while I agree that I don't believe that Parler has presented a strong enough case. When you start to see the references here that they absolutely need to show some kind of agreement, that 
an allegation of parallel conduct and a bare assertion of conspiracy will not suffice. That they haven't shown that Twitter acted together intentionally or at all. That because they don't currently have the Twitter feed, it must be impossible for them to have acted in such a way is, in my opinion, myopic, right? The actual violation of the Sherman Act to actually restrain trade does not require an agreement. It requires a conspiracy. Or as the Department of Justice actually says here, the conspiracy or agreement to fix prices, rig bids, or allocate markets is the key element of a Sherman Act criminal case. In effect, the conspiracy must comprise an agreement, understanding, or meeting of the minds between at least two competitors or potential competitors for the purpose of with the effect of unreasonably restraining trade. The agreement need not be embodied in express or formal contractual statements. It must merely constitute some form of mutual understanding that the parties will combine their efforts for a common unlawful purpose. And I think intuitively we all understand that, that antitrust violations, that anybody doing anything illegal, whether you're in the mafia or elsewise, can say, wow, I wish that other store wasn't there, just off into the air. And if that store burns down the next week, that maybe you could make a claim of a conspiracy to restrain trade or racketeering or wherever you might find yourself in the law. So the court actually buys Amazon's argument here, I think a little bit more than they need to, where Amazon says, we never had an agreement. We've never even talked about it. The executive says, to the contrary, we have an internal policy never to discuss matters involving one customer with another customer. Nobody in my organization would be authorized to discuss Parler with Twitter without my authorization, knowledge, or involvement. But you can actually say, well, Twitter or even the Amazon executive could say, man, that's really a bummer. All that stuff that's happening at the Capitol, isn't it? And who can believe everything that we're hearing in the newspaper nowadays? It's really troubling, isn't it? And you say, okay, I kind of get that message. I understand that. You can have a meeting of the minds without a signed agreement. And that meeting of the minds can be a violation of Sherman. It's just that Parler doesn't even make that claim. They just basically say this happened. And so they must be in bed with Twitter. And I agree with the court that that's not enough. But the court probably smacks them down a little bit harder than is warranted for what has actually been presented and the state of antitrust law. Now, the breach of contract claim I've said from the start has been pretty much a slam dunk for Amazon because of the way the contract is written. A number of folks disagreed with that, came into my comments and said, no, they have a strong case because the contract is unconscionable and all this stuff. I said, not really, not generally for corporate entities that are entering into a contract of this type. They're assumed to be sophisticated, that they can read the language, that they've hired a lawyer like Hogue to read these things and that they can highlight what potential liabilities and exposure risks they might have. So the court basically kicks this out almost entirely. They say the gravamen of Parler's breach of contract claim is that AWS terminated the agreement without providing Parler 30 days to cure any alleged material breach. They also addressed the suspension or termination issue, which I said was a distinction without a difference, and the court agrees. AWS denies that it terminated Parler's account, claiming it merely suspended its services. As discussed below, the distinction is not material to Parler's claim at this stage, however, as the CSA, the Customer Service Agreement, grants AWS the authority to take either action under the same circumstances, which I know a number of you who are watching this or have otherwise listened to it think is unfair, but these parties can freely enter into an unfair agreement. It's on them to make sure they read it and negotiate it properly. AWS responds that it is Parler, not AWS that has breached the agreement. In particular, AWS claims that Parler breached section 4.2 of the customer agreement, which requires Parler to ensure that Parler's content and Parler's and end users' use of Parler's content will not violate any of the policies, including AWS's acceptable use policy. AWS cites multiple examples of content posted on Parler's site that undeniably 
meet this definition. And I would tend to agree, although I do think it would be useful for the record to have at least a few of those examples that the court could find palatable to publish, put forth in a document like this one. And then we get to what I've said from the start. Parler has not denied that content posted on its platform violated the terms of the CSA and the AUP. It claims only that AWS failed to provide notice to Parler that Parler was in breach and to give Parler 30 days to cure, as Parler claims is required per section 7.2B1. As we've looked at over here, 7.2B1, the agreement can be terminated by either party for cause if the other party is in material breach and the material breach remains uncured for a period of 30 days. That's what Parler is focused on. But you might note, as we've discussed, there are two subsections to 7.2B and the court notes that as well. However, Parler fails to acknowledge, let alone dispute, that section 7.2B2, the provision immediately following, authorizes AWS to terminate the agreement immediately upon notice and without providing any opportunity to cure if AWS has the right to suspend under section six. And then we go back to section six as we did in virtual legality a couple of days ago. And section six provides in turn that AWS may suspend Parler or its end users right to access or use any portion or all of the service offerings immediately upon notice for a number of reasons, including if AWS determines that Parler is in breach of this agreement. Now, Amazon actually wound up talking about both breach and a reference to the security of both its offerings and third parties as the reason for the suspension. It does that. And once you get in that bucket, then they have the right to terminate immediately. So actually arguing that they required to give you 30-day notice before a suspension, even if that suspension equates to a termination, was never going to be a winner. And I'm very sorry if you heard otherwise on YouTube or elsewhere. In short, the CSA gives AWS the right either to suspend or to terminate immediately upon notice in the event Parler is in breach. Parler has therefore failed at this stage in the proceedings to demonstrate a likelihood of success on its breach of contract claim. And then we get to the tort claim, the intentional interference, which, as I said, was the weakest. This is one that's always kind of tossed in because if you can get it, it's great. But in general, if you've got a contract, a contractual relationship between the two parties, it's very difficult to establish a tort, especially if one of the parties is acting within the bounds of the agreed upon contract. Under Washington law, in order to establish a tortious interference claim, Parler must prove the existence of a valid contractual relationship or business expectancy, a, a client or a prospective client, that the defendants, Amazon, had knowledge of that relationship, an intentional interference inducing or causing a breach or termination of the relationship or expectancy. So here, the argument is Amazon knew that Parler had entered into contracts and user licenses with the Parler customers, and by cutting Parler off, Parler was going to be forced to be in breach of those contracts. It knew all of that. Might be true. But number four was always going to be a catch-up, right? That defendants interfered for an improper purpose or used improper means. They acted outside of their contract. They did it only to benefit Twitter and resultant damage. And Parler tries to make the claim. But as you can probably guess, once you've kicked out the Sherman Act benefiting Twitter claim, once you've kicked out the breach of contract claim, this one doesn't stand on its own. Parler has failed to allege basic facts that would support several elements of this claim. Most fatally, as discussed above, it has failed to raise more than the scantest speculation that Amazon's actions were taken for an improper purpose or by improper means. Further, for the reasons outlined supra section 3B1 and 2, 
Parler has failed to demonstrate the likelihood that Amazon breached the CSA, super meaning above in Latin for the lawyers out there. To the contrary, the evidence at this point suggests that Amazon's termination of the CSA was in response to Parler's material breach and otherwise in accordance with the language of the contract that Parler had entered into. And so Parler has therefore not demonstrated a likelihood of success on this claim. Now, those are the three claims. So the court says you're not really very close to the merits, to a likelihood of a win on any of the claims that you have brought. They further say because likelihood of success is a threshold inquiry, when a plaintiff has failed to show the likelihood of success on the merits, the court need not consider the remaining three winter elements. Now, I'm not familiar with that particular case, Garcia versus Google. I will say in my readings, it's more often the case that you still go through the effort of talking about all of the injunction factors, because while you might think there's a 0% chance, if somebody else thinks there's a 10% chance of a likelihood of a win, and you were just going to be irreparably harmed, you're going to be erased from existence, and the public would be benefited by issuing the injunction, and the other side had acted just evilly, and the balance of equities clearly favored you, even if the law fully didn't, then sometimes it would still make sense for an injunction to issue. There are always going to be facts and circumstances questions. So I'm not sure that this is necessarily uh, the best standard. It's certainly not a standard that is applied equally across courts. But the court says, we're still going to talk about it. And if you remember from the earlier videos in this series, I said irreparable harm was the one area where I thought Parler could clearly and easily win. Parler had made the case. They, in fact, had spent too many pages making the case, establishing that this particular window of time was the time that Parler had waited for, that it was exploding in growth, it had gone up a thousand spots on the App Store and the Google Play Store, and that this moment in time that Amazon chose to hurt them was the worst possible moment for Parler to be hurt in this fashion. I thought they made that case pretty strongly. I would give them an easy win on irreparable injury, even though I don't think that would win the day because of all of the other factors involved. Irreparable injury, as the court says, is traditionally defined as harm for which there is no adequate legal remedy, such as an award of damages. In short, Parler alleges that these actions, the actions that Amazon took, have threatened it with extinction. And that's right. Parler has said, we are very likely to go out of business or have a significant downswing in what we could have gained that is irreparable. You can't bring it back. You can't bring those clients back. You certainly can't bring the business back if we go under. And so an injunction should be issued, judge, because if it doesn't, it'll be too late. The legal process will take too long. The court acknowledges the injuries Parler alleges in its complaint and its motion may be irreparable. And that's the closest Parler gets to a win in this document. The court further says in winter, the Supreme Court explicitly rejected the possibility of irreparable harm as too lenient to support a preliminary injunction, certainly by itself. That's what the winter factors mean. And in the hearing the court held on this motion, Amazon vigorously disputed that Parler has shown that its extinction is likely. The court makes no finding on this issue, which is unusual because they actually go through this multi-paragraph section here to say, we don't make a finding except that when we get to the next paragraph, the court says Parler's showing of a likelihood of irreparable injury, particularly in light of its failure to demonstrate a likelihood of success on the merits, is insufficient to support a preliminary injunction. This seems to be a little bit of a legal drafting error, uh, that at some point the court decided that it was not going to make a finding on the irreparable injury, but this paragraph suggests that they did in fact find that Parler had won the likelihood of irreparable injury complaint. So this happens, again, judges uh, and their clerks uh, are human beings, and so that can occur. It doesn't matter because the court is ultimately going to find that 
even if they gave Parler this one, they're not going to give Parler one, three, or four, so it doesn't much matter. But I do think that Parler has by far its strongest case in suggesting that it was going to be irreparably harmed. Next, the court tries to deal with this serious questions and balance of hardships that the Ninth Circuit puts upon the winter factors. It says, first, as discussed above, the likelihood of Parler prevailing on its claims is not a close call. So they, court didn't actually say that, right? We just read through the document. Court didn't say that it's not a close call, just said that they're not likely to prevail on the merits. This is the court doubling down on that, tripling down on that and saying, Parler, drop this. It's not a close call that you're going to win this case. And so I'm not going to issue this injunction. There aren't significant questions that are in play with respect to the likelihood of your win on the merits. That's a strong statement. Doesn't mean that Parler couldn't possibly win on appeal or at the Supreme Court level, although I think it unlikely in both of those instances, but it means that this judge in this court is signaling very strongly that Parler is not going to win in this court of law unless something really wild pops up in Discovery or elsewhere. Parler's allegations at this time are both inaccurate, which again is not a finding I would have the court make in this instance, but it's not up to me, and unsupported, and are disputed by evidence submitted by Amazon. Second, while the balance of hardships may fall heaviest on Parler in the form of potential monetary loss, I think it's actually more significant than that. I think the balance of hardships clearly falls on Parler the most. Amazon has convincingly argued that forcing it to host Parler's users' violent content would interfere with Amazon's ability to prevent its services from being used to promote, and as the events of January 6, 2021 have demonstrated, even cause violence. Now, This is effectively a court making a determination for purposes of a legal document on its own recognizance, right? It has established in this paragraph that it believes that the messages on Parler didn't just promote, but caused the violence at the Capitol on January 6th. Again, this is an area where I think it's entirely unnecessary for the court to use this language. And I think those of you that are inclined to favor Parler from a political standpoint on this question can point to language like this and say, this was clearly a court hostile to Parler. And I would tend to agree. That doesn't change my legal analysis. And I do think that they get to the right end state based on what the law actually says, but they toss in a lot of these things. And we'll see them even more in the upcoming paragraph towards the end of this document. It's just entirely unnecessary. You just don't need it to arrive at the decisions of the court. On balance of equities in the public interest, in exercising their sound discretion, courts of equity should pay particular regard for the public consequences in employing the extraordinary remedy of injunction. But Parler has not, at this stage, demonstrated a likelihood that it will prevail on its breach of contract, Sherman Act, or tortious interference claims. It therefore necessarily follows that the claims do not support a finding that the public interest weighs in favor of granting the injunction. And again, This is not the way I would see the winter factors actually used. If these factors are to be separate, if they are to serve the purpose that they are intended for, then the fact that you are unlikely to win doesn't affect the public interest analysis, doesn't affect the balance of equities analysis, doesn't affect the irreparable harm analysis. This is its own factor. You analyze it, you give a win, maybe a strong win to one side or the other, you move on to the next one. So actually having the court say here that because they're not going to win, they don't have public interest, that doesn't actually make a lot of sense to me. On the other hand, Amazon argues that an injunction forcing it to continue hosting the Parler platform would pose a risk to public safety. Now, note that that public safety argument, which I think Parler properly argued in their response to Amazon's response, suggested that that was, in fact, a public interest argument and not a balance of equities argument. The fairness from the Amazon side of things 
was probably that they would have to put him back up for 30 days, that they would be unhappy about doing so, but that if Parler were to be eliminated from existence, that the balance of equities might well favor Parler in that particular case. Now, I think Amazon brings up a good complaint that says, hey, we need to be able to enforce our contracts. We don't want to have this language up on our service. We don't like it for whatever reason, and we reserve the right to kick it off under the contract that we freely entered into. I think those are all reasons to side with Amazon if you're so inclined on the balance of equities or the public interest. The court kind of ignores all those and just focuses on the language at all. There is no debate, however, that forcing Amazon to reinstate its services now before such a system, a system of moderation on the part of Parler, can be implemented would result in the continued posting of the kind of abusive, violent content that caused Amazon to shut Parler down in the first place. So again, this sounds like a factual finding, right? This is what Amazon has alleged is what they did. This is the nature of the content that is apparently in breach of the acceptable use policy. And I think these are correct. I think these are probably the right factual findings, but a injunction is not necessarily the level that you make these findings at. There is debate about all of this. The court explicitly rejects any suggestion that the balance of equities or the public interest favors obligating Amazon to host the kind of abusive, violent content at issue in this case particularly in light of the recent riots at the U.S. Capitol. That event was a tragic reminder that inflammatory rhetoric can, more swiftly and easily than many of us would have hoped, turn a lawful protest into a violent insurrection. Here's where you get all this editorial. And you can agree with every word in here. And at the end of the day, a request for an injunction is a request of the court to use its equitable powers, its powers in the interest of justice, rather than on some black letter law. So, Some of this makes sense, but it just kind of goes off on its own path. You can kind of see that this judge in particular, this court, is hostile to Parler and whatever it represents. And Parler never brought any First Amendment arguments, and that's proper, but it also never brought any kind of notional fraud claims for freedom of speech and how Amazon should be treating people and all these other things. So the Parler case was already weaker than it maybe could have been. And you just open up the court to say, let's talk about the Capitol riots that apparently the court finds that you caused. And let's talk about the fact that inflammatory rhetoric can turn a lawful protest into a violent insurrection as put forth by your application with no regard. And I don't think it's proper in this context, but with no regard for the fact that all those news articles that Amazon brought up were in fact referencing a lot of different social media outlets and certainly not just Parler. Conclusion, Parler has fallen far short, however, of demonstrating as it must that it has raised serious questions going to the merits of its claims or that the balance of hardships tips sharply in its favor. It has also failed to demonstrate that it is likely to prevail on the merits of any of its three claims, that the balance of equities tips in its favor, let alone strongly so, or that the public interests lie in granting this injunction. For these and the remaining reasons articulated above, Parler's motion for a preliminary injunction is denied. And so at the end of the day, it is much as we described in our earlier videos in the series that Parler has lost on its request for an injunction against Amazon. That it's always difficult to convince a court to tell another corporate entity that it has to do something for another corporate entity assuming that the contract says that the first corporate entity can do what it wants in respect of this particular area. So as much as it might pain some of you, as much as some of you might be celebrating a decision of this type, I think it was pretty much a fait accompli once I got a chance to read the customer service agreement and see that Parler was never going to win on that breach of contract claim. 
This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoyed this episode, this video, please like, subscribe, share it around, tell folks that we are here. Certainly, we've been dealing with certain YouTube controversies over the past 48 hours that I would also like you to check out and share around with people. I think that's pretty important to talking about what censorship is, what censorship is allowed, the contracts that we enter into. I do not dispute that YouTube has the ability to do what it did to my own videos here on virtual legality. Uh, But nevertheless, I can call them out for the silliness uh, in which they have chosen to do so. Otherwise, if you caught this on that very channel on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.